Hi, welcome to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, and welcome to our Re-Air Summer. Summer is associated with transformation, personal development, and a sense of renewal before the new academic year begins. Our team at Stanford Psychology Podcast decided to take some time off, but don't worry, we are not going into radio silence. Instead, for every week until September 20th, we will air some of our favorite episodes around the topics related to personal development and self-improvement. We hope you will like it, and please don't hesitate to be in touch if you have any ideas for how our show can be improved in the new academic year. Thank you so much, and here's the episode. Welcome back to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists share the most recent work. This week, I had the distinct pleasure of speaking with Dr. Keltner, professor of psychology at UC Berkeley and co-director of the Greater Good Science Center. Dr. has worked on many topics such as compassion, power, and social class. He has introduced hundreds of thousands of people to the science of happiness through his online course and podcast with the same name. He has written multiple best-selling books, most recently on awe. In this chat, I ask him about all things awe, from traveling to psychedelics to Beyonce, of course. Does everyone feel awe? Should everyone feel it? What is the most common form of awe? How can awe help people through grief? What on earth does it have to do with ASMR? Does awe make people naive? Finally, Dacher shares what it was like to work on movies such as Inside Out and shares some kind words about his former advisor and psychology legend, the late Lee Ross. Hope you enjoyed this conversation. Today, I am full of awe to be talking with Dacher Keltner about awe and the psychology of this emotion that not a lot of people seem to be researching. So I'm very excited about this opportunity. And first of all, I want to thank you for making the time and ask you, how are you holding up? You just published this book. Everything must be happening right now. Everyone wants to have you on their podcast and rightfully. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's because awe is so rich and variegated and there's so many pathways to awe, what I call the wonders of life, from music to spirituality to moral beauty. They're just, every conversation is different and it's been, and I've learned a lot and I feel like the time, this time in our world needs a lot of awe. It's been actually very busy, but, and I've got a lot of work yet to do, but it's been gratifying and really rewarding and fun. Before we get to all the fun, we have to get definitions out of the way. So let me yeah. ask the most predictable and uninspired question I can ask you. What is awe? And to give our listeners an example, when was the last time that you felt awe? Maybe today or in the last couple of days? Yeah, that, that's not a ridiculous question at all, Eric. It's actually one of the hardest questions that engaged people in the spiritual traditions and Immanuel Kant and Edmund Burke and Ralph Waldo Emerson. It's a hard question. Yeah, Jonathan Hyde and I tackled that question. I think it was in 2003. And what we did is we read a lot of the, the anthropological traditions and spiritual approaches to all the Upanishads in Hinduism. And in particular, Edmund Burke, an Irish philosopher who really wrote about the distinction between the beautiful and the sublime, which occupied a lot of Western thought. And he really said that awe is about power, or the strength of the stimulus and obscurity. You can't make it out. And then we, with a little 
assistance from cognitive science really defined it as when you encounter vast things, right? Big physically, temporally, semantically, that are what I more colloquially I would call mysterious, that they transcend your understanding of the world. And so that definition helps us differentiate awe from horror, which is really about death and destruction and fear, which is about threat, surprise, doesn't quite have the vastness in it. And so that's where we start. The very, and I think that for just as we move through the day, vast mystery is a good two-word definition. I, I just recently experienced awe coming yesterday, coming, uh, driving to a book event and looking out in the bay and all these uh, cargo ships were coming in and it was bright and sunny and the contrast of the ships and it felt like a painting. And next thing I was, was feeling awe. Wow. Awe seems to be contagious. Uh, from what I have noticed, you were describing it. I am feeling some yeah. awe and other people talk about how emotions in general can be contagious. Do you think awe is contagious? Yeah. Maybe especially so, more so oh, than my. other emotions? Eric, what a terrific insight. I, for, I've been teaching awe for quite some time and it, it led into this book. I gathered a lot of stories of awe from different kinds of people. And this is embarrassing. Even thinking about how contagious awe is giving me the goosebumps, which is weird. <laughs> what I've been struck by is if you get a group of people together, a group of psychologists or medical doctors who might teach or athletes or people in prison that I visited, and you get them telling stories of awe, and people, even though you don't know the person, the events never happened to you, they get goosebumps, they cheer up. And I think there's something really deep in that phenomenon, which is that Awe, I believe, really helps us bind to our culture and our social collectives. And the fact that when we hear certain pieces of music or see visual art or hear a story that's about awe and we feel that contagious feeling, that connects us to the ideas and the people generating the story. And you've got a very interesting dynamic that a young person like you should study. Absolutely. I agree. And I Certainly agree since last summer when I had the opportunity to travel to New Zealand. And yeah. my God, have I ever been to a place that led me to feel awe. And I want to ask you about the physiology of it. Because yeah. what is interesting about the word awe, maybe just in English, is that the sound I want to make when I feel awe is the word awe. Yeah. I was in New Zealand looking at these mountains and these glacier lakes and awe. And then tears would be coming <laughs> out of my eyes. What yeah. is going on physiologically that I feel this vastness, this beauty, and there'd be liquids coming out of my eyeballs. I want to make yeah. these sounds. What's going on there? Yeah, I write a lot about that in the book. And because in psychological science, really beginning with William James and earlier, even Walt Whitman wrote about, how, we'll get to that in a second, the laws of physiology associated with awe. And you can't help, when we started our work on awe 15 years ago, tell me what it's right. They would mention things like tears and being quiet and goosebumps and the like. And in the book, inspired by William James and his view of embodied emotion, I review what I think is stunning science of when you feel awe, the default mode network, which is these big chunks of the cortex quiet down, which are about self-representation. When you feel awe, people tear up. And that's a parasympathetic autonomic response. So more social engagement oriented. When you feel awe around the world, people vocalize. It actually turns out in our work to be one of the most universal emotional expressions, right? Around the world, you recognize vast mystery. Whoa, 
that has effects on your body. The warmth in the chest is the vagus nerve. We, that is part of this physiology story of awe. And chills, Todd Thrash, done really nice work separating two kinds of chills responses. And one is the shudder, which is about horror. And when you, in Judeo-Christian writings, there's a lot of shuddering, right? At a judgmental God, because he's going to throw you into hell. <laughs> but the chills is really a distinct response. It's the little muscle around your hair follicles in your arms and in your back and up your head. And that is really about awe and merging with others, right? And has a deep mammalian history of how social mammals leaned in and merged with other so fr friends in their group to handle the perils of existence, cold, food scarcity, predators, and the like. So much so now, Franz Duval has made the observation that certain dogs will fluff up their fur, like the chills, when they see friends coming by. And so the physiology tells us that we have been evolving awe for a long time. Jane Goodall said that she observed awe in her chimpanzees and said, this is the beginning of primate awe and maybe the early stages of spirituality. And I agree. I think that as Walt Whitman said, our, yeah, I love his quote where he said, if the soul is not in the body, where is the soul? And when you had that experience and when people feel this physiology of awe in music or meditation or be at a political protest, they feel like this is my soul. And that's intriguing for psychological scientists. And awe can be encountered in the weirdest places. So I am under 30, <laughs> but in your book, you write about how everyone under 30 knows about ASMR, except for me. Apparently. <laughs> so you have sent me on a journey. Yeah of looking up YouTube yeah. videos alongside tens of millions of other people, of just watching people eat food <laughs> or talk <laughs> quietly into a microphone. And I'm like, this is so weird. Also, this is wonderful. And I fall asleep and I love it. What is ASMR and what is going on there? How do you conceptualize it as a part of awe, as distinct from awe? How do you think about it? What is going yeah, on? Yeah, what a terrific question. Awe has many components, right? It has this vast mystery that gets it going. We get to it, like you said, Eric, through many different pathways from sublime music to political ideas to weird things like ASMR or not weird things. And, and it has this, and we can try to understand phenomena connected to awe, uh, by thinking about the multiple components of awe and ASMR. I had the same reaction. Like when I started to study awe, people would send me videos of ASMR and I, I'm, 61 years old. I was like, what is this? ASMR's autonomous sensory meridian response. It's basically the chills. And it is, you find it by these videos that, you know, people eating things, approaching you. I love how like you get ASMR from like a video of somebody cleaning somebody else's ears, <laughs> slurping shellfish. It's just crazy. But I found the truth to it by talking to this really intense Berlin artist who said that she does all this amazing ASMR that I write about in awe, the book. And what she said is, I said, what is the essence of this? Like, why in the world are people, millions of people getting the chills from these weird videos? And she said, for me, it reminds me of home. It reminds me of lying in bed as a child and hearing my parents talk and hearing the sounds of 
the dinner table. And what that tells us is these videos and the sounds of eating and forks clinking and getting moving close to you are about this merging that's key to the chills and key to awe. And that's what I, that's what I love about this emotion is it just takes you to the strangest places where you realize humans are weird. They're so culturally particular. And yet there's something deeply universal about our love for people to approach us. As I was preparing for our conversation, I talked to a friend of mine about awe and all the questions I had and the experiences of awe that yeah. I had. And he looked at me and said, what? Awe? I've never felt that. I've never felt awe yeah. in my life. And I showed him yeah. pictures of the most beautiful landscapes. And he was like, meh. <laughs> we were talking about his favorite artists and music bands and paintings. And he knew about ASMR already. I tried everything. And his response was, meh. <laughs> So how much do people differ in their susceptibility to awe and how much can it be trained and should it be trained? Should we take a normative stance and say, you would benefit yeah. from experiencing more awe? Yeah. Man, you are not, you're not asking e easy questions here, Eric. So thank you. Yeah. You know, my view, uh, we often lose sight of this in the science of emotion that I work in. Evolution operates on individual variation. Every human characteristic varies profoundly according to individuals. There is work on a dopamine-related gene that accounts for fluctuations in dopamine, which I think is part of the core of awe, of exploring and wondering about things. And there is profound individual variation in awe. We see it in every study we do. We do diary studies. We just ask people, hey, but they, and we've asked them in four different countries, do you feel, did you feel awe today? And some people never report an experience of awe over a couple of weeks. Other people report several experiences of awe each day, right? They are just filled with awe. And yeah, and that begs the question of why. Our cultural upbringing, our individual life history, uh, individual variations in genetics, all are involved, social class, et cetera. And there's profound individual variation. There's profound individual variation in how you find it. In our work, we document the eight wonders that give you awe of music, art, big ideas, spirituality, life and death, moral beauty, nature, and, and collective movement. People have their own domains of awe that really matter. Should we cultivate this? And I would, I, in the conversations around the book, have been struck by the hunger for awe. I do feel we have a biological need for awe. I think the data reviewed in the book as Descartes and Einstein and Darwin and Rachel Carson and others have said, this is a basic emotion. This is a fundamental human emotion, a basic state of consciousness. And I would, I'm hesitant to say normative, but I would strongly urge there's a reaching out to me. We're designing all curricula at Greater Good Science Center. Our students have been moved away from all healthcare settings where, you know, you watch people get really sick and face death, death. Bring is a big mystery. It's one of the great mysteries. We take awe out of healthcare settings. So those are two contexts in which we need more. I think tech design is shortly lacking in severely lacking in awe design, really thinking seriously about what it means to wander and feel awe and mystery. A lot of tech design is about quick solutions, which are antithetical to mystery. So I, I envision a lot of not normative, but Let's bring this back into our context. In my research, I study extreme forms of distrust and generalized 
cynicism. Everyone is out to get me. No one can be trusted. People are only ever selfish. I know that you have done a lot of work and written about how that is somewhat wrong and misleading and unhelpful. But then people ask, okay, so what is the alternative? Gullibility, naivety, believing everyone can always be trusted, which of course it isn't. So I have been looking for what is the antidote to it? And then I read your book and you are writing, as you just mentioned, about one form of awe, which is moral beauty or a certain sensitivity yeah. to moral beauty in everyday life. I wonder if you could speak to this phenomenon in particular. And if you think there's any risk to this sensitivity to moral beauty, making people naive and gullible and targets of exploitation. Excellent. Really, thank you. What a deep question. Yeah, Eric, when we, we started to do our work on awe and, and I... Like when William James tried to figure out mystical experience, he quickly gathered stories. And my lab and I and Yang Bai and Ria Monroy in particular were like, oh, we can measure awe. You can put it on a scale. You can measure goosebumps. You can do an fMRI scan. And that's all good. But it was, felt like it was missing something, like the deep meaning of And so we gathered stories of awe from 26 countries, every imaginable kind of country, lots of non-weird Samples of East Asian and different kinds of religious political systems. And we just simply said, tell us an experience of awe when you encountered a vast mystery you didn't understand. We gathered up speakers of 20 languages, translated the story, it took us 18 months or so. And then we started classifying them. And the most common category of awe is what you say, which is moral when you are moved by the kindness of people. Like, God, my friend just gave away half their paycheck to this unhoused individual. You're moved by their courage, and we would get stories of a guy in combat saving lives. You're moved by overcoming obstacles. A mom in Ireland, yeah, you know, just blown away by her daughter who had club feet when she was born. And then there was the mom in an audience watching her dance. And moral beauty, it's so fascinating. John Height's written about this, and it's a central theme in the book. Isn't it interesting that in many ways, we, we get our deepest lessons about our unique morality within the culture or subculture we're in from other people. Not Sunday school, not studying texts, but through this, like you said, contagious power, this moving power. When we encounter moral beauty, we have elevated vagal tone, we have oxytocin release, we have this urge to be better. And to me, I when I look at the, our media-saturated lives, we've lost sight of that. And Jonah Berger has shown that people hunger for inspiring content like that. And so we should be designing for that. Does it make us gullible? Absolutely. Absolutely. And thank you for asking that because Charles Manson, the gurus, right? They have this moral. It's interesting. I think probably a lot of people in this audience are fairly progressive or liberal and were dumbfounded by Trump. And when Dave Eggers went around to the rallies of Trump before he was really, when he was trailing Hillary Clinton. And he was like, uh-oh. <laughs> because the people at these rallies, they are morally inspired by Donald Trump in the tens of thousands. And it's electric. And were they fooled? I believe they were. So you could think of a lot of examples of that. And that's one of the things that's interesting about emotion. And in some sense, this is John Hyde's view of morality, which is, we have these deep moral intuitions, right? I feel inspired by this person on the street corner in Berkeley who's shouting about that conspiracy theory. And, but then we need social discourse. We need rationality. We need conversations. We need this to say, what do you think about it? Oh my God, I was fooled. Yeah, so it all can make us really vulnerable, gullible, 
It doesn't mean it's less so gullible. It tends to sharpen reason. And also it can be commodified and exploited to problematic use. Okay. Despite all of this, let's say our <laughs> listeners say, ah, man, ah, yeah. it still sounds wonderful. I want to feel more of it, but yeah. I have personality and sure growth mindset. I can change over time. I can become more susceptible. What can I do now? And so when we ask, when do people feel off? It doesn't just come down to individual differences. Some people just feel it more than others and we can work on it. Yeah. It's also just the situation yeah. you are in. So I wonder if there's a way to just expose yourself to new contexts, to contexts yeah. in which you're overwhelmed to go to new places, travel somewhere. I was in Japan recently and nothing made sense to me. And I was constantly in yeah. awe, just opening the door and going to the supermarket because <laughs> everything is yeah. different from what I know. So how do you think about just like everyday habits of feeling more awe to the yeah. extent that we want to? Yeah, thanks for asking that. And it's interesting in part because of research at Berkeley, at, at Stanford, like Greg Walden and Jeff Cohen and now Jason Okunofua at Berkeley, we're really interested in science that improves people's lives. Thank goodness. And I will tell you, Eric, like I've taught happiness for 25 years online at Berkeley, big audience. I've taught it to probably over a hundred thousand people, a couple hundred thousand people. And often it's like, what can I do out of this science that'll help my mind and body? And frankly, it's hard to find something that beats getting a little bit of awe, right? Just five minutes a day. It's good for your immune system, your heart, your reasoning, your sense of stress, your sense of time, et cetera. It is good news. And that begs the question of how do you get it? And there are at the, I write about this in the book, like there are different practices you can get awe. Some of the ones I encourage are we've tested very rigorously an awe walk that thousands of people are leading around the world. Just like you go out, like you said, imagine you're almost like in Japan, like everything's different. Look at it with fresh eyes, telling awe stories in work and at the dinner table. Like what made you feel awe? What was your first experience of awe like as a child? I've taught that a long time. And when you tell those stories, like you said, you're tearing up, you're moved at other people's moments of awe. I Let's not forget, and one of the arguments I make in the book, which I've been making in other writings with Keith Oatley and others, is culture archives awe. In fact, you look at a lot of the great traditions of culture, this comes out of new cultural evolutionary thinking, it's representing and symbolizing awe. Religious chanting, painting, cathedrals, collective movements, ecstatic dance, sports, etc. When I was struggling in my life, a few years ago, for personal reasons, because of a death in the family, I, I was like, I got to go find awe. And so I listened to music that gave me awe. I went to new mysterious music. I studied paintings. I looked at visual designs. I just rested and watched the clouds pass by. It's all around us. And just to close out, this, we have found, and this was surprising too, that on different parts of the world, people feel awe two to three times a week, mm. right? So it's there. That's actually pretty common, right? When you think about not as common as laughter, probably not as common as gratitude, but it's an emotion you can feel. It's why I have everyday wonder in the title of the book and be given its benefits. We should be orienting to it and building a little awe practice. Wow. Th this is very personal, but I'm only now realizing this. A few years ago, my father passed away and unexpectedly, mm. and it was obviously just the most horrible thing that happened to me. But I remember mm -hmm. a couple of weeks after it happened, 
I wanted to read a book. I don't know what book it was, but I was really burning to read this book and I felt horrible. Like, how could I even think of anything else? But at the same time, I was like, no, no, this is a sign that life is going on. There's other things that there's a certain awe that I have personally for ideas and reading books and just thinking about the world and thinking about people. And it's not something to feel guilty about. It's a life force that helps you keep going. And so that's very beautiful framing. Yeah. And I wrote this book after my brother passed away from colon cancer. And that was a horror show. And he and I are really close. And I had the same impulse as you, Eric. Like I was blown off the map, couldn't make sense of stuff. Joan Didion writes beautifully about that kind of almost hallucinatory grief where you really have trouble functioning and making sense. And I was teaching and doing my research, but that was about it. And, and I did what you did. I was like, I got to find all. And I just grabbed a bunch of books that I care about and tried to figure out my new moral compass and did a lot of awe practices. And the book has that. Just think about, go to awe spots that mean something to you, sit near trees, et cetera. So it's what strikes me about the convergence of our observations is that a lot of the most important human emotions emerged in evolution as responses to human complexity, struggling, trauma, and suffering. Compassion, a central human emotion, is about our response to other people's suffering. Awe is about mystery and uncertainty and where you just can't make sense of the world. You're destabilized. And humans get together and do their best work in those contexts. And awe is an animator of them. And it illustrates the dangers of not having enough awe, of lacking any awe in life. And then, of course, as you mentioned, there can be the opposite, where maybe there's too much of a good thing and everything is overwhelming. So one thing I wanted to ask you about is about kids, young kids. Don't they feel awe all the time because everything is new to them? Everything is exciting. And I wanted to ask the question, but then I reflected back to when I was a kid and there was so much awe. Yeah. There was also so much threat and anxiety. And I was always the kid who was like, I only go to a playground if there's no other kids around. Everything's a threat. Everything is very intimidating to me. So I imagine there's a boundary between awe and shudder and anxiety and overwhelming threat. How do you think about <clears throat> awe in kids? First quick note, we've done a lot of work and I really encourage the audience to look up Alan Cowan, A-L-A-N-C-O-W-E-N. I've been lucky to work with him. He's a computational Type, who has really mapped distinctions between awe and a lot of states. And awe is really different from fear and horror and terror and beauty and interest just on that. It's stunning, Eric, that there aren't a lot of systematic studies of awe in children. And that's mind-blowing. What in the world is psychological science doing, right? It is the, you get around kids and you just, you, they just exhaust you. It's almost a cliche with, what is that? And whoa, and explain a leaf. And why is dirt? And on they go. And you're just like, you know, what happens with the sun? And you're just like, my God. And we just don't know. We literally don't know about the developmental unfolding of awe, its trajectories. What about later in life, right? Such rich terrain to cover. The two observations, one, we have been working, FDHS, Damku, and a team that I'm part of have a paper coming out on Brief experiences of awe benefit kids. They become better citizens and kinder. And the other observation is Rachel Carson, the great environmentalist. And as I was pondering your question, like, 
what do we have to say about awe in children? And she has this beautiful essay from 1956 or seven of Teach Your Child How to Wonder, I think. And it's just about, man, if we don't teach kids to wonder, we, they, we deprive them of, seriously, maybe compassion and awe are the keys to the good life for a young child. And I think a lot of educators are wondering, are we not doing our work there and getting off? So we don't know much. And I hope this book inspires a lot of people. There are ways to measure it, boys' face, behavior, context, et cetera, that will start to tell us about the importance of awe in childhood. And it can certainly go both ways. We teach our kids, but they yeah. teach us that everything in life actually yeah. is worthy of wonder. And so weird if you think yeah. about it. At the age, everything just seems normal, but it really isn't. And it's fascinating. And no one studied that either. And that's so astute, Eric, which is that any parent will tell you, like, not only are my children wonder-filled, but man, when I watch them, it's amazing. And I was watching them come out of the birth canal. And when I saw my daughter Natalie come out of the birth canal, her face looked like all these relatives. Just the, it was, it truly, I'll remember it until my deathbed. Like this was big awe, but even more subtle. And it's interesting. Like when you're a parent and you're watching a child just crank out all the words they know and play with other kids and act like little monsters and just everything that they do is, wow, it's incredible to watch humans develop. And probably for those who like evolutionary approaches, that's that contagion of awe between parent and child is probably vital to adaptation to life and culture. And I wish we knew more. I really do. It's a, in fact, I'm scribbling down notes about what to do next. So thank you. <laughs> Speaking of magical things we don't understand, one question I just have to bring up. We are calling here from Stanford to Berkeley, mid-California. What about psychedelics? <laughs> there is more and more yeah. word coming out on psychedelics having all kinds of interesting, mysterious effects, oftentimes for people who are suffering the most. And there's very yeah. cost research, but it's very little research. But from what I've heard from people and reports is that a sense of awe is a big part of the experience that you can feel and that maybe these have some of the important positive effects that we hear about. Yeah, we're in this renaissance of psychedelics. I grew up in the late 60s in Laurel Canyon, where there was the first wave of psychedelics of the Timothy Leary, Ken Kesey inspired movement. So this feels like... <laughs> We're repeating history in some sense for me, but, and before we get to the role of awe in psychedelics, I'd really encourage our audience to read a recent paper by Dr. Yuria Salidwin, who's coming to Berkeley at Othering and Belonging, Other and Belonging Institute, published in Lancet, where she's indigenous and there's a lot of exploitation going on. So we have to, given the money that's involved, the cultural appropriation, read that article just to orient ethically to this new renaissance, because this is going to be hundreds of billions of dollars and lots of cultures at stake. Yeah, psychedelics, chemical compounds that, you know, both spiritual medicines from indigenous cultures, synthesize things like LSD coming out of Switzerland in the 30s. Yeah, they're, it's just funny and it's amazing to me. And what I'm excited about is psychedelics they changed my life. I think they, I was born with a lot of anxious genes and had experiences in formative years that really changed how I view the world forever. That's amazing. I'm very excited about 
their clinical uses for like Josh Woolley is doing at UCSF for veterans and people have been traumatized and people get a terminal disease diagnoses. That's good news. And it's fascinating. It's central to so many human phenomena, right? It is, as William James argued, the central mystical emotion, right? Along with terror. It is central to music and musical experience. And it's central to psychedelics. And we, no one really talked about it. And it's because we just, I don't know, we were, we felt uneasy using the word awe in a scientific. And now it's growing. And David Yadin at Johns Hopkins and Peter Hendricks are really making the case that the magic of psychedelics is that we transcend the self. We get into this oceanic collective emergent self where we're discovering new ways of being in the world. And I agree. I think this culture needs a big dose of that. And I'm really, I, I am excited to see where that takes the field in terms of understanding the neurophysiology of transcendence. The, how long do these transcendent awe experiences with psychedelics last? People say, I can tell you a psychedelic experience I had when I was 17 changed who I am. Is that true? And I think that the focus on awe and all that we've learned, and Maria Monroy and I just published a paper on this. And it gives us a lot of knowledge about pathways by which this process, these processes unfold. Each podcast I am doing, I allow myself one wacky, weird question that I am just burning to ask. Okay. Here it is. Good idea. Here's the social phenomenon that I have been puzzling over for years. Let's say someone approached me and showed me a random jacket and was like, do you want to pay $10,000 for it? I would be like, no. But then this person is like, Beyonce wore that jacket on her whatever tour. And yes. let's say I'm a Beyonce fan and she's great. And let's say I'm not a grad student, so I could actually afford it. I'd be much more likely to do it. And it's similar yeah. to even in the negative sense, when you go to history museums and you have certain objects, historical objects that this famous yeah. or infamous historical person was holding at a ceremony or was wearing or whatever it is. Why does that make things so special? Is all the answer or do I have yeah. to look? No, I think this is one of the, you asked about the daily practice of all. I do believe we all need life philosophies and contemplative practices. Humans have been doing it for a long time. And with the decline of religion in young people in particular, we've lost sight of that. I feel it in the students I teach that we got to be asking questions about what is my soul and what is life and what is morality and et cetera. And the example that you have provided, Paul Rosen wrote about negative contamination where like you can have something and he, his example is Hitler's sweater. If you have somebody present a sweater and you say, it's a really comfy cardigan, but it was Hitler's, they refuse, they would never wear it because yeah. it's contaminated with his moral depravity. But the compliment is really more pervasive, which is sacred objects. Sacred. I love Beyonce, or I personally love Iggy Pop, I will confess. And the things that he's done, and I have posters from shows I've seen, everybody has this. And that is fascinating. And it actually is a deep human universal tendency to the things that we truly think are irreplaceable outside of the world of transactions and speak to your sense of collective goodness or soul or spirit. We endow those things with 
sacred power. In the archaeological record, is now people used to carry around the skulls of their parents because they were sacred beings. This is a set of sandalwood beads that I got in Bhutan when I went trekking with my daughter, right? And I carry it around. I touch it when I'm on planes where I get nervous. So humans love this. When I ask people who might teach, like, all right, and it could, this could be like medical doctors doing the hardest work in the world. And I'm like, how many of you have a sacred object? And they, about 80% raise their hand. How many of you have it with you right now or in your living space? Oh yeah, my baseball mitt or my daughter's lock of hair. So that is fascinating how humans want to touch and have with them and be empowered by the things that bring them awe. And it's a great daily practice for our audience to just think about what are those things? I'm drinking right here. My daughter made this is 15, 20 years old, Serafina Keltner McNeil, and it has my name on it. And I don't think I, that there's no price I would pay to give this up or get money I would take to give it up. It's fascinating. And we need more of that. We need to understand it scientifically. Many people seem to agree that the good life consists of memories like this, experiences like this, social connections that are deep like this. Yeah. And yet we keep being materialistic and yeah. work sometimes more than we need yeah. to, even though some people need to work to survive, of course. Yeah. It really depends. And act more materialistic than if we were asked in a survey what we value, we yeah. really would want to do. And it seems like awe, oh, as you write about, can help us embody these ideals and realize, mm -hmm. man, what really matters are these social connections, these quirky, yeah. wonderful, random people I get to spend life around. That's really what yeah. matters, not salary or the price of my car and all these different things. And I guess likewise, the other way around, you could see that someone who's very competitive and always has to be number one, sees everything as a battle for a winner, has a competitive mind frame they would struggle to find awe in life somewhat more, especially for other people, right? Because if I have awe for a musician or a researcher, there's a certain recognition here that they are better than me. And that's good because it's inspiring. But now, it involves yeah. a certain like humility. Yeah. What a deep question. I've really been struck by just the cult, the response that I'm getting to this book that is in this vein that you're pointing to you that, wow, we've been in this 40 to 50 years, sociological data suggests of self-focus, competition, striving for material gain, the usual stuff. And we, it's almost a cliche now to talk about it, but it's still here and it's still dominating the minds of too many people, of a lot of people. I would say too many given climate crises and awe does point you in this towards an alternative pathway. And it's interesting, Jake Moskowitz, Paul Piff published a paper the greater the wealth and status, the less awe people tend to feel. So this striving gets in the way of this essential, what Einstein called an emotion that if you don't have it, you're dead. You're not a human. Yeah. And I think that I, what I'm really excited about around young people, I think my generation is toast, but younger people are turning to it and they are turning to game nights, which are collective and festivals are up and sharing music and psychedelics in certain parts of the world and more communal housing. And the idea that I never heard about as a young person, let's all share dinner together and gathering. So, and outdoors, historic numbers of people are getting outdoors. And yeah, I think, I think we are, there are many different ways in which we're in this inflection point culturally. Is democracy dead? What about the climate crises, inequality? And then 
what is, what are the kind of the emotions we want to guide our lives? Is it self-aggrandizement or uh, awe is the other obvious alternative? And it's people are hungry for it. And I mean, I think, I think there's a lot of reason for hope there, right? That this emotion is very powerful and it makes you realize I don't need to buy more things. That thing I was worried about, my status on Instagram, who cares? That's good news. And I think it's going to be, I like to think of it as a compass sometimes, like all points you towards things that will make you have a more meaningful life. And I think it's got this content to it of don't buy into this separate self, always rise in status model of humanity. I want to zoom out from the book and the topic of awe specifically. Yeah. You as a researcher and as an individual who decided to write this book, what I find interesting is yeah. that not only do you do a lot of science communication, you use different mediums to get the science out, to get the word out. And right. from what I have been told decades ago, many decades ago, psychologists were shunned for writing books for the general public. Now, that seems to be somewhat more yeah. accepted now and somewhat more the norm. Yeah. But then you were also doing yeah. podcasts. You are on a podcast right yeah. now. There are so many other mediums that people are using. I don't know if you're on TikTok. I don't understand TikTok. I'm too old for it. I'm 26. Everything's changing. How do you think about the changing landscape of science communication and young people wanting to do science communication and getting the word out about whatever they think is important and everyone needs to hear about and how everything's constantly yeah. changing and it can be hard to keep up? Yeah, I think it's the best and worst of times. And I think that there's enormous promise that I would issue a really serious caveat. The best times is that psychological science is now in the public realm. David Brooks and Malcolm Gladwell and, and others. And that's good. People take it seriously. Vivek Murthy, our Surgeon General, has a whole campaign on loneliness and social connection. It's his legacy. So that's great news. And that comes through public communication. And I, I, think as young scholars like you, um, it's good to get your voice out there. And, and it's good in particular, younger people from marginalized groups, people from historically oppressed ethnic groups. This is a powerful way to hear about their view of science and that and our, and what we're doing in society. So that's good. I think the real detrimental outgrowth of this is we've, I worry we've, as in a lot of really serious journalists, are worried that the explosion of social media has lost sight of the fundamental tenet of journalism, which is fact-checking. And any serious journalist does serious fact-checking. And I worry in our science, we've lost sight of peer review. And suddenly people are writing something that the culture treats as a scientific finding, but it's a blog. And blogs are not peer-reviewed. And peer review has its biases, but it is powerful. It's like the jury in the American democracy. And you, I have been around long enough where I hear debates about phenomena and they come out of Twitter, right? And I'm like, well, is that really where we should be debating scientific findings? Seriously, is that where we should be critiquing people's theories? It's a, it has its place, but I do worry about that. So that would be my caveat. But I say we've become a very democratic place. There are all kinds of voices out there. There are 800,000 podcasts, I wow. think, in the United States. Yeah. So everybody's cranking them out and people are listening, writing and, li and speaking. So that feels like democracy. Many of our listeners are still young in their careers. 
And maybe they are yeah. on a psychology career or maybe they are just interested in psychology, but still wonder, what can I do with this degree? So we have talked to people who are in political consulting and business consulting and all these different careers that someone might not know that this is something you could do as a psychologist. No, I think you were the first guest we have on was consulted on a movie on Inside Out and were asked to give advice there, which my question is basically, was that as cool and wonderful and awe-inspiring and magical as it sounds? Yeah, you're making me tear up and get goosebumps thinking about it. Thank you for asking. Yeah, I'm a doctor, just won the Academy Award for Up. Really thoughtful guy brought me, he's like, hey, I'm I know you teach emotion at Berkeley. Come on down to Pixar and we're, we may make a movie about emotion. And it was surprising because I honestly thought my first thought was like, do they want my voice for a professor in the movie? But what they wanted was the science. And, and I was, it was one of the most exhilarating experiences, uh, in my career. And I was, I worked on that film and then his next film, Soul. And there's a lot of awe in Soul, especially the kind of key last scene that came out of the science of awe. And then I've been working on the next Inside Out. And it, what I love is what they do is they just take knowledge really seriously. The topic of the film is, be it about cars or the soul or emotion and, or dinosaurs, and then they translate it to art. And we all, Eric, work in the world of data and central tendencies and means and regression coefficients. And it's so amazing to see people say, I don't care about that. I want this other kind of truth, which is art. And, you know, when I first saw this, when I first saw the screening of Inside Out, it's about two thirds away animated, which they always do at a certain stage of a film's development. I just, I was in awe, man. I started crying and wow, this is how really creative artists would think about the mind and emotion. So I encourage our young listeners to, do more of that, to get out into the world and talk to tech or creative industries or medicine or whatever, because there's so much wisdom out there and you get so many ideas about the meaning of our work. So I would say go do it. Sadly, we are running up against time. So I want to thank you for making the time for this conversation and want to give you a chance to add. I should have asked you about, but we ran out of time. I failed and I didn't ask you about anything you want to add in these last one or two minutes? Yeah, I guess I would like to, with a little bit of tears in my eyes, acknowledge Lee Ross, who was my advisor in grad school, passed away. And a lot of my sense of science, of being phenomenon-driven, like Lee was, being a little bit subversive, being doing unusual paradigms, which I can't help but do. And also, Lee, Lee had this way uh, he just was not constrained and he just was like, wherever your imagination takes you, that's what the work you should be doing. And he taught me so much and I miss him daily and dearly. And so I just want to say thank you, Stanford, and for hiring him. And thank you, Lee, such a beloved mentor and huge person in my life who I felt a lot of awe for and still do. So that's all I'll say. That's beautiful. I took the last course he was teaching before he passed mm. away. I remember mm. on one of the last slides he was talking about the purpose of science, very grandiose terms and what it's all about. And he said something like, wisdom is knowledge in the service of kindness. I think that's just really beautiful and then yeah. captures the little bit of interactions I had with him. That's beautiful. Thank you for that quote. Yeah, amazing. I'll keep that for a long time. Yeah. All right. Thank you.
for this conversation. Thank you, Eric. And yeah. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Great being with you. Thank you for listening. Following Robert Cialdini's advice here on this podcast, let's see if I can convince you to take about five seconds of your valuable time and leave us a quick review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or elsewhere. <laughs> this podcast has been a labor of love by several wonderful young folks here in the department, and we have been surprised by the ever-increasing reach the podcast has had. We are near half a million downloads a year and a half since we started, with tens of thousands of new downloads and thousands of new followers every single month in nearly every country around the world. Help us make even more people excited about psychology by leaving us a review or subscribing to our no spam, all fun substack at Stanford PsyPod to connect with other listeners or shoot us an email with your thoughts or suggestions at stanfordpsychpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and have a wonderful psyched